Hello, everyone. We're delighted today to have Senator Claire Chandler. Uh, she's the Senator for Tasmania, a uh, member of the Liberal Party. Claire, how are you doing today? I'm very well. Thank you, Sunil. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to have you on. Um, always a good sort of starting base to start these sort of uh, podcasts on is going through your general journey into politics, if you like. So I think we can we can start. Sure. Um, so I joined the uh, Liberal Students, which is our um, university campus based um, youth organisation. The first week that I was studying at uni, which was 2009, it wasn't long after um, the Howard government had obviously lost in 2007. And I was getting a bit more politically interested as I came of voting age. And I thought I was pretty sure I was liberally minded. Um, but the right thing to do if you want to really investigate these things is to get involved in politics and meet more like-minded people and, and sort of test your ideas that way. And that's certainly what um, the Liberal students enabled me to have the opportunity to do. Um, about 12 months after that, I joined the party proper right before the 2010 federal election, um, which the Liberals almost won. It resulted in a hung parliament um, with the Labor government in a power-sharing arrangement. Um, and so I guess that my political uh, engagement was happening at a time where um, the Liberals were, um, you know, go going through the soul searching, doing the policy work required for when we would eventually end up in government again, which was in 2013. Um, so that was sort of how I joined the party. Once I was in, um, I was pretty actively involved. I really caught the political bug. I loved being around um people my age who had similar views on how the world works and how a country should work and, and you know, going to um, liberal students' conferences or young liberals' conferences really provided me with a, a great group of friends that I, you know, just wanted to keep coming back and, and seeing at conferences every year. So that um, really, you know, continued my interest for many years and then I was... Um, had the honour of being the uh, Tasmanian Young Liberal President when I was 25 and I was Federal Young Liberal President when I was 26. So took a um, leadership roles within the youth wing of the organisation as well. Uh, and from there, um, I guess you sort of get to a point where um, you're growing up a bit, starting to think about a political career and it honestly wasn't something I ever turned my mind to um, I've thought, you know, if I get the honour of doing that one day, it'll be something I do in my 40s, not something I do in my 20s, as was the case. But um, around the time that I was finishing up as Federal Young Liberal President, um, we as a party in Australia started concentrating on um, the struggles that we've had engaging with women. And I got involved in doing the review in Tasmania of um, how the Liberal Party engages with women and you know, surveying the membership and talking to women about why they haven't got more involved in all of this sort of stuff. And um, through that process, people said, well, we want more women to get involved in politics. You're, you've done this, you know, um, written a report that says this is what the Liberal Party needs to be doing better or differently. Um, why don't you put your hand up yourself? And I thought, oh, okay. And eventually enough people kept suggesting it that I thought it would be a good idea. So I ran in um, the state election in Tassie and or Tasmania, I should say, um, in Tassie in 2018 and wasn't successful then, but then ran for Senate pre-selection later that year um, and was pre-selected number two on the Senate ticket for Tassie and then entered the parliament after the general election in 2019. And at that time I was 
29 years old. I was the youngest member of um, the government, the Liberal government, as it was at the time, and I was also the youngest woman in the parliament. So, yeah, pretty yeah. Uh, incredible time to be doing it. We need more young people to get involved in politics. But, yeah, as was is often the case with these things, it's not something that you sort of set out and plan. It just sort of happens. What was that experience like uh, going into politics so young uh, and also being a, a female? I think in the in the UK, um, you know, I think our Conservative Party's done reasonably well uh, in the last few years in particular in attracting um, a lot of sort of female politicians. Obviously, we've had multiple female prime ministers here for the Conservative Party. But what was your experience like on both being so young and uh, being a woman in, in that early stages of going through the whole process of getting elected? Um, I think um, there are always advantages and disadvantages to these things. Um, and I think particularly being young, the advantage that you have is that you can um, clearly demonstrate the uh, need to, um, you know, for the, the party to reach out to younger generations and be part of that um, generational renewal, right? And, and that was another, another one of the reasons I um, put my hand up to run in the Senate in particular um, is that there were a number of my, you know, friend, friends of mine who had ended up in the Senate and were about my age and I thought, well, you know, they're doing something incredibly important. We um, need to be able to articulate our values to young voters. Um, more, it's more important now than ever that we do that, particularly in this age of social media. So it was, um, I hope to be able to be a part of that. So that was that was really positive. On the other hand, um, I think people are always very surprised um, that young people are involved in politics. Like people say, oh, you're far too young to be a politician and it can be, um, <laughs> not, not demoralising isn't the right word for it, but sometimes you think, oh, well, why shouldn't someone, a, a young person get involved in politics? And now uh, it's the situation where there's, um, a woman from the Labor Party in the Senate who is, you know, five or six years younger than me. So, um, right. you know, we are getting more young people involved. So um, th that can only be a good thing because we need to have that breadth of experience, um, you know, wh whatever party you're in, whether it's um, a centre-right party or a centre-left party. Um, and, look, as a as a woman um, entering the parliament at, at that age, I mean, again, I think it was um, a largely a very positive experience. I've been so fortunate in my time in politics and in my time in the Liberal Party to have been mentored by um, fantastic men and fantastic women who have all sort of helped me um, shape my my path to where I got to. And so that's only continued since I've been in the Parliament. Amazing. And I think what would be good to hear, what sort of attracted you to the Liberal Party going back uh, younger? So what was it, the sort of the core values, the core uh, principles, rationale that made you feel like a, a a member before we talk about being elected, just a general member of the Liberal yeah. Party? Like I say, um, I joined the Liberal Party not long after the Liberals lost government in 2007 and um, Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister and um, I, I just didn't, I, I thought that John Howard um, as our Liberal Prime Minister had done such a fantastic job of steering our country through, um, you know, very good times and bad times and he was um, just such a, a man of such strong character and I didn't necessarily feel the same way. Um, about Kevin Rudd as, as Prime Minister. So I, I think that that contrast point really um, was the, the catalyst for me signing up. But 
once I was there, I think, you know, really the um, the the values of the individual and equality before the law and um, and free speech in particular were motivating factors for me. I think um, it's it was hard 10 years ago when I was at university to be a conservative, a, a, a young woman on campus who was known for being conservative um, because I was, you know, involved in student politics and the like. But it's a lot harder than that now with, um, you know, cancel culture and the way social media has sort of shaped our public debate about issues. So, yeah, the the free speech issue has always been a big motivator for me. And I think is um, as it has, you know, continually been eroded is one of those issues that I just keep coming back to, whether it's, um, you know, was when I was in the Young Liberals or Liberal Students or now. I was going to touch on that in terms of being a young Conservative and being so, you know, obviously being involved in politics and clearly being a vocal young Conservative, again, before you elected, what was that experience like? And, and you mentioned there how you think it's got worse. I think most people would almost definitely yeah. agree with you. Um, uh, what have you seen that's made it clear to you that this situation is getting worse for, if you like, younger conservatives, especially on campus at universities? Yeah, I mean, when I was at university, it, it, it wasn't... I was never in a situation where I felt like I couldn't put my opinion on the record, right? Um, but I'd be sitting in tutorials and I, I did political science as part of my arts degree and I did a combine, combine that with law. And I'd be sitting in political science tutorials and I'd, you know, give my point of view about, um, you know, industrial relations or whatever the issue might have been. And and other, you know, students in the class would say, oh, but you're just a young liberal, like as if to sort of denigrate my view just by virtue of my political affiliation. That that was, I mean, not great, but, you know, the, the worst thing that I really had to deal with. But now I talk to, you know, liberal students on campus and they feel that they can't even engage in a debate or can't even put a point of view forward that's different to that which their lecturer or their tutor might have. And I just think isn't the point of going to university and certainly the approach that I took that um, it's about challenging your ideas and figuring out how you see the world and, you know, determining the, the value system that you are going to use for yourself to make a difference in the world. And you can't possibly develop that system of values and refine and figure out what you stand for if you're in an academic situation where you can't, you know, put any view on the record other than that which your lecturer has. I think that, so yeah. I, think, I think that the institutionally universities um, have got worse since I was there, but then you add in this extra layer of um, of social media and engaging in debate, um, whether it's on Twitter mainly or, or Facebook, and just the 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 insults that get thrown people's ways for the views that they have, or you know, you you can't say that, or that's not politically correct, or whatever. I just think it it is incredibly hard, um, and you have to be incredibly brave to stand up for what you believe in these days. I think a lot of people listening to this would definitely agree with, with your experience. We get, we get a lot of people who email in saying similar sort of things, saying how it's so difficult in on campus and just being at university or even, you know, uh, end of school, just having these sort of anything non-left kind of view on anything can be quite um, frightening for a lot of sort of uh, younger people. Um, and talking about how it's sort of got worse, is there specific things you've seen 
uh, outside of just social media. We'll, we'll definitely tackle social media, but outside of social media, because one thing we see quite quite uh, popular here in the UK, or something that's become quite big, is the almost the, the divide between London and everywhere else in the UK. So being a, a conservative in, in London is, you know, very, like, it's it's very rare. You won't see too many people that will come out and say that they're conservative in a big city like London. Is that similar in Australia, where you have maybe Sydney as the kind of, you know, that big city where it's harder to be conservative in the more rural parts or going north and south from there, it's it's different? Or is that not so much the case there? Um, I, ha- I haven't really thought about it. I mean, my experience is mainly in Tassie and I don't think, you know, being a, um, a young Liberal in Tassie and I, I don't necessarily think it's harder to be a young Liberal in some geographies versus others. I think it's hard to hard to be a member of a political party when your political party's in opposition full stop, right? Like the the brand is always going to be stronger and people are always going to be far more excited about what you have to offer um, when you're in government. And we are now in a position um, in Australia where the Liberals are in opposition federally and in every state except Tasmania, where I'm speaking to you from right now. So that that makes it tougher, I think. But, again, we just have to remember that um, the values are timeless and politics works in cycles and, you know, we just have to stand up for what we believe in and provide a point of differentiation with the left of politics and it'll, you know, the, the cycle will come back around again. I'm confident of that. Well, what is the, the general state of the Liberal Party at the moment? Because, you know, we... The thing in the UK, we don't get much Australian coverage of what's going on day to day. We we tend to see, uh, we've seen about the election that happened, and that's pretty much it. We don't get a, a feel of some of the issues or the 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 core sort of stuff that's going on in Australia. So, um, in firstly, just in general, the the Liberal Party, what's the sort of current state of it, and what's its sort of plans going forward? Like I said, we're in um, opposition in um, every mainland state and territory and we're in opposition federally. We are fortunately in government still in Tassie and and that obviously brings challenges. No one likes to be in opposition. You would always prefer to be in government, but um, that also provides you with the opportunity to very carefully scrutinise what Labor governments are doing across the country. Um, And in terms of the, the... hot button issues politically in Australia at the moment. Um, cost of living is uh, a, a big concern for families um, and, and for individuals as well, I think. Um, we're seeing skyrocketing energy prices. Um, inflation is on the rise. Interest rates are on the rise. All of these sort of, you know, big economic um, issues that we have to grapple with. And part of that um, was, you know, the, particularly the inflation issue was as a result of the war in Ukraine and the um, supply chain issues that we all sort of, you know, worldwide started to experience when that was the case. But there's also a question of whether or not um, the government is pulling the right levers to be able to um, manage those issues as they occur. And we've had a Labor government federally now for 12 months, and I don't think um, they've quite uh, figured out what they're going to do about cost of living. We'll be looking very carefully at the budget that they hand down in May to see if they have some of the answers to those questions. But right now, they're falling pretty short on that. The other big issue um, in Australian politics at the moment, of course, is um, what we call the voice, uh, what the government is calling the voice, which is the question of um, 
constitutionally and enshrining a representative body to government for um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians. So we will be having a referendum at some point in the not too distant future. Um, and the government was elected with a very strong mandate to do this, to put this question to the Australian people to say, well, we want to put a representative body into the constitution. Um, unfortunately, the government has been very light on the details of what that um, that body, that the voice we call it, is going to look like. Um, and this week, the Liberal Party came to the position that we will not be um, supporting that. Um, we'll be supporting the conduct of the referendum. We support Australians having their say, but we won't be supporting the concept of inserting this um, this race-based body into the constitution. So uh, that will be uh, taking up a, a lot of the, um, the commentary and I think a lot of brain space with people between now and the end of the year. But at the same time, the struggle for the government is that we are also facing a cost of living crisis. So how are they going to balance, on the one hand, having this referendum about this issue that they have a mandate to do? I recognise that. But on the other, there are serious economic issues at play that they need to be able to handle. So what's this body like? Is it similar to, like, I know in New Zealand, they have, a, like, a Maori representative within their government. Is it a similar kind of thing that they're looking to do? Uh, it, we we don't know exactly okay. what it's going to end up looking like. Um, so the, the constitutional change that's proposed in the referendum will, in effect, just say that um, the body exists and that it advises um, or it can be consulted um, by government, including executive government, when making decisions. And there is a lot of legal uncertainty around exactly what that um, consultation process is going to look like and what it means to be consulting to executive government in terms of, um, you know, the relationship between the body and the cabinet, for example, or the body and government departments. So um, there is a fair bit of uncertainty out there around what this means. And I think that's one of the um, many reasons why the Liberals have sensibly come to not support this um, this constitutional change. It's, it's interesting. I think the relationship uh, Australia, New Zealand have with the sort of uh, native people that's very interesting because for here in in the UK, this sort of stuff we'd all you know be saying it's sort of like I don't know if it's like racial baiting or that sort of stuff. It's very I would say not very popular again, other than maybe London and that sort of area. It's not something I think we'd really get much traction was talked about that much. Mm. Um, so it's interesting always to hear the relationship New Zealand and Australia has with its native people and um, how they sort of, what what they do from it. Um, yeah, and I think, I think as well, like no Australian thinks that we shouldn't be doing more to um, make lives better for Indigenous Australians. There are some, um, you know, Indigenous Australians living in remote communities dealing with very, very um, complex social issues, um, particularly domestic violence is the one that we are seeing on the news um, almost constantly at the moment um, out in these regional communities. And, and government should be doing everything that they can to be able to deal with those sorts of issues and provide support to those sorts of communities. But the concern that we as Liberals have is that the Labor government has not been able to uh, set out how having a constitutionally enshrined voice to Parliament is actually going to make life better for Indigenous Australians in those communities. So it's, you know, sort of like we, we all agree with the end goal, but how you get there is incredibly important and I don't think the government's got it right on this one right 
And so Labour have been in power for one year. And how how just is that, about. just about okay? How's that one year being perceived? Because when the current uh, prime minister was elected, there was um we in in the UK was covered, but there was stuff that I think the main sort of stuff we saw was that he was anti-monarchy and 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 this sort of stuff in his uh, previous stuff. So naturally, had probably more of a negative reaction here than than positive. But you know, summing up their one year, if you like, almost one year. What's that? What's that been like? You've mentioned the cost of living crisis. You've mentioned this bill. Um, what else sort of changes, if if anything else, they've brought to to Australian people? So I guess the other big, um, the big policy agenda item for them has been um, pursuing action on climate change in a far less careful and considered sort of way than um, what we were doing when when we were in government, certainly. And, and I think this will um, ultimately end up sort of segueing into the cost of living issue um, and the energy issue as well. Like, we're, you know, we're in a situation where energy prices are going up and we're talking about the need to get um, more green energy into the the grid, and of course, we should all be doing our part to um, minimise the impacts of climate change and all of this sort of stuff. But the technology piece isn't necessarily there yet, so there is a real concern that the government is sort of pushing that change too quickly without having due consideration of you know what are we going to do in the stopgap where we apparently are not going to be able to um, you know be using as much coal energy you know what are we going to be using in the meantime that can do it as you know quickly and cheaply as that so i think that's the other big um big issue that's been playing out for the government over the last 12 months but quite quite honestly the voice has taken up an awful lot of their time i would say far too much of their time given the other issues that they should be dealing with and, and for context, how bad is the cost of living crisis in Australia? You know, it's talked about a lot here in the, in the UK. We we are talking about how high inflation is, and uh, mm. our current prime minister Rishi is trying to do lots of different measures. Some being successful, some not so much. But what has what is the impact of the cost of living crisis for, if you like, the average Australian right now in Australia? Sure. So I, I mean, energy prices is um, the number one um, issue, I guess. The cost of energy is gone like through the roof. It's up 20% or something like that. Um, but I think the other one that people are really saying, and, you know, I see it as well, going to the supermarket and getting your um, your trolley full of groceries, uh, they are significantly more expensive than they were, you know, even 12 months ago. And it's at the point where people are saying, you know, you, you get the shopper docket at the end and you say, how can all of that have cost this this much? So I think that's, you know, from talking to constituents and getting the feedback on the ground. That's the, they're the, they're the two big ones that I'm hearing about that, um, uh, yeah, cost of energy is through the roof and the cost of groceries as well. Um, and that's not to mention the fact that, you know, we have had a lot of interest rate um, rises over the last 12 months. So we, the Reserve Bank met this week and they didn't raise interest rates for the first time in, I think, 10 months. So we've had 10 consecutive months of interest rate rises and a lot of Australian mortgage holders put like would fix their mortgage rate over the COVID period. And so we know they are all going to come due within the next, I think it, I think it's in the next quarter or so. So it will be very interesting to see what impact all of those rate rises have when they all of a sudden start hitting um, in a few months. Right, right. So again, a lot of this is very similar to the UK in terms of what's been what's been uh, going on with even interest rate rises and energy costs. The cost is is 
uh, really mm. uh, gone up here. I'd say it started to stabilize a bit more here than maybe in sort of um, other places. What What's interesting is, and uh, it'd be you know, we when we talk about labor here in the UK, it's it's always fascinating to hear different what labor is, and if you like, in in, in different countries, our one I'd say has uh, started to move maybe a bit more to the center. We had somebody called Jeremy mm. Corbyn who would be considered extremely far left, and um, now they've got someone called Sakir Starmer who's kind of moving it more the spectrum towards the middle. Um, but a lot of people argue his party just having so many really left really far left fundamentals that there's only so much you can really move that needle what's the what's if you like the comparison in australia with uh the current uh, labor if you like administration i would say it's very similar the difference being obviously that our labor party is in government and, and yours isn't um anthony albanese is um doing everything he can to present himself as a um a, a centrist a middle of the road prime minister to the australian people he took a very um small target strategy through the last election campaign back in may um beyond um a, you know a, a broken promise about um, reducing everybody's power bills by $275, which they haven't talked about since the election and the voice, there wasn't really that much that, you know, in terms of firm commitments that um, the, the the government made during that campaign. Oh, an integrity commission. They, they promised an integrity commission and they've delivered that um, within their first six months as well. But they ran a very small target strategy Um not putting, you know, really big, scary ideas to the Australian people, just putting very common sense ones. But um, I, I think the the issue is, um, and the point you make about the Labor Party in the UK, it's the same issue here, that while you might have a leader who is doing everything he can to appear to be a centrist, we do have to remember that there are um, still, you know, people within the the Labor Party and within the government who have ideas way left, way, way, way left to um, the point where where the Prime Minister is. And, and we're sort of seeing that um, play out a bit at the moment with some of the debate around the AUKUS agreement um, where, you know, we, we now have three members of the government who are basically saying, well, we don't think AUKUS is a very good idea. AUKUS is a bipartisan foreign affair, foreign policy and, you know, d- defence commitment that we should all be sticking to. And so I think it's absolutely crazy that, um, you know, you, you've got these fringe elements of the Labor Party saying that they don't think it's a good idea and then the, the Prime Minister sort of still insisting that he's, you know, a, a government for all Australians. We do, and we in, in opposition, I think, have to draw attention to this fact that um, there are a spectrum of views in any party, but the far left of the Labor Party and the Greens, who they have to work with to get legislation through the Senate, um, will at some point start pushing their ideas upon the rest of the government's agenda. And we have to be very attuned to when that happens and call it out when we see it. So, you know, again, very, very similar to some of the stuff that we hear in the UK. Obviously, they're in opposition, so it's it's slightly different. Um, and we're regularly seeing the constant conflicts within their own party. I think it's got better in the last probably six or so months where they, they seem to have a slightly more united front. Um, and we're going for a sort of different process in the sense of we've had a Conservative government for a considerably long period. And, you know, we've got an election coming up next year at some point. Uh, so there's lots of talk of what, you know, if it's going on polling right now, it looks as if Conservatives are going to really struggle to, to stay in power. 
um mm. our party's yeah gone for a lot of if you like a uh, term or the last year or so um so it's like an it's a slightly different kind of period um one of the criticisms many people have had of of our party um the, the conservatives is our lack of conservatism so a lot of people would say in the last maybe um you know, ever since COVID, we we haven't really, you know, we turned into a big state over COVID lockdowns and sort of stuff, but the power necessarily hasn't fully gone away. And we're still um, not showing necessarily the most conservative values. Taking that into Australia with your party, the Liberal Party, do you see a more conservative element? By that, I mean a party that's generally supporting lower taxes and a much more freer economy. Is that something you you see within your party the stronger conservatism maybe yeah i i think the last few years have been um challenging for center-right governments uh, across the world right like we to an extent had to park our values to deal with the pandemic um because i mean i'm not sure of um the the um all the details of exactly what the conservatives did in the uk during covid but um in australia Obviously, we had um, uh, lockdowns in um, all states at one point in time, and in some states, there were you know there were liberal governments in charge, and they were um, locking people in their houses for extended periods of time. Um, we provided a, an awful lot of income support to people who couldn't work for whatever reason um, during the pandemic, particularly during lockdowns, and and all of that doesn't necessarily um, sit well with us, right, as um, as fiscal conservatives. We um, don't think that government handing out money, you know, hand over fist to um, the voting public is is the right way to um, have, a, have a strong economy or um, manage a, a central budget either. So that really did, um, I, I think, challenge all of us and, to an extent, I think, again, in centre-right parties across the world, we need to rebalance ourselves. And um, and I, I don't think it's about lurching, you know, to the political right or to the political left, but it's just about remembering the values that our party stands for and thinking carefully about how we can um, sort of re-articulate those values to the voting public and um, be very clear about what it is that we stand for. And also keep in mind that as much as we had to park our values during the pandemic, we we have to be an alternative to the left of politics, right? By design, we need to um, have clear differentiators on a policy front and a value front with um, left governments or oppositions, whichever the way um, it, it might be in your local area. And we need to be um, proud about doing that and we need to be brave about doing that because goodness knows the media is not helping us anywhere at the moment um, and, and particularly in Australia the media is um, uh, they're very enamoured with our Labor Prime Minister and they are writing story after story about uh, the Liberal Party's demise and I just think that that's absolute garbage um, our values now are just as good as they were when Sir Robert Menzies first articulated them back in the 40s. We just need to be proud of those values and stand up for them. It's the the media stuff, I think, is almost universal. We have a massive issue here in terms of the the push on the sort of just general woke left culture here, mainstream media for this country. I think mm. in most people say a pretty bad state in terms of what they uh, talk about and there's always a reoccurring joke uh, which is like you almost have to sign a social 
contracts or stuff that you believe in before you can be on these these uh, uh news outlets and um we actually had uh your former uh uh deputy prime minister john anderson was on our platform and he was really oh, uh, explaining a lot of this yeah i mean some of the stuff he was he, we we did a whole uh series uh with him and john anderson they talked a lot about their timers in, in leadership and what they sort of uh the issues they face and you could just see some of the stuff is so relevant to uh the stuff that's going on today um and um john in particular spoke a lot about the difficulties as a as a conservative now compared to um when they were in administration in terms of how how difficult it is and how a lot of things he would be talking about um when he was uh in the administration wouldn't be considered as conservative they weren't considered as anything they were just considered as very normal things to discuss but those same things now in australia are seen as conservative which is what he finds much more challenging and, and, and different um we would just a fair reflection in, in in general i know that's for sure the case here in in the uk in australia as well that's sort of just very difficult to almost use common sense arguments and uh you're almost thrown into that batch of uh, conservative thinking or right-wing thinking even you'd argue maybe 10 years ago it was just a normal it wasn't even a political uh, debate. Certainly. And um, one of the issues that I've championed since um, getting elected is the issue of um, women's rights and, um, you know, making sure that we stand up for this idea that, again, 10 years ago wouldn't have been entirely controversial that um, or controversial at all that women should be allowed to have their own sports and their own spaces and their own facilities without um, a male identifying as being a woman and being able to access those those spaces and those sports and those facilities. Um, and I know all too well that if you say something like that these days, then the media will automatically categorise it as being anti-something when yeah. in reality what you are just doing is being point one pro-woman and point two standing up for something that is absolutely 100% basic common sense. And, you know, we, we never should have found ourselves in this position to start with, but I, I see whether it's on social media, whether it's in traditional media, women, um, not just myself, but other women who've st stood up for these issues and fought for these issues being, um, you know, called horrible, horrible names, um, at, at, and that's on the, the good end of the spectrum, but having their motivations for standing up for those issues, like, questioned, and I just find it, frankly, disgusting that we're that that's where our, our media in particular has come to, that when they hear... Um, you know, a woman is an uh, adult human female, they interpret that as something else and it being about, um, you know, something that it quite frankly isn't. So, uh, yes, I, I think our, our media has a lot to answer for and it is it is getting progressively harder to mount those um, traditional conservative arguments or traditional common sense arguments, not even conservative arguments in in the public discourse. I think that debate is definitely heating up more and more in in the UK. We saw it in in Scotland, where um, a a prisoner who uh, somebody who had committed a crime against women started identifying as a female was a man. They put uh, him temporarily into a female prison, and they had changed yes. their mind, and it be just became it, it it blew up over here as a, as a topic. Um, and I think uh, I I've been fairly vocal on, on this sort of stuff which is i think it's a, such a demise on women's rights i think that's what's going on mm -hmm. now it's probably the 
one of the most you know horrible things towards women's rights maybe in 20 30 years i think it's, it's a really um but you're right because saying this sort of stuff just saying a woman's a woman a man's man or whatever that sort of stuff you're automatically put into a transphobic kind of category and all the sort of uh, nonsense but is is that a massive issue in, in australia the the women's rights stuff because here in the uk we're seeing more and more worrying stats about children being you know um some of the stuff that we saw one of the uh, studies that came out is how schools don't want parents to know um about if a child is now saying that they yeah. want to is that something that's happening in australia as well definitely definitely um so uh, one of the reasons I got involved in this whole debate was not long after I was first elected, um, I started receiving a whole heap of emails from um, women in particular, but from, you know, mums and dads generally concerned about a set of um, guidelines that Sport Australia, our nation's peak sporting body, had developed saying that inclusion in sport should be on the basis of gender identity rather than sex. And so sport was um, probably the... The first issue that I came across where I thought, well, you know, this is something that people care very deeply about. We are a sport-loving nation. Um, you know, all Australians play, many, many, many Australians play sport in, in one form or another. And, um, yeah, just sort of seeing it um, snowball from there. And now we're, you know, likewise having conversations about um, the, the prisons issue uh, in particular, and um, a lot of this, like, um, really dehumanising language, like, you know, using expressions like um, chest feeders and, um, you know, all of this sort of, you know, really crazy stuff that um, I think really rubs people up the wrong way. So, yeah, well, I don't, the debate hasn't progressed um, quite as far here as it has in the United Kingdom because I know some very, very good women over there are fighting very, very um, big and important fights on that front, but we are seeing it more and more in Australia. Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, we for a long time here in the UK saw it as more of a, a American problem. I mean, we, that was the big thing we saw in California, how um, they were sort of the, the, one of the first uh, places where they started accepting people who identify as females into their prisons and we saw uh you know the 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 reaction was in terms of men going in and you know beating women in prisons and mm-hmm. impregnating women in prison and then it became quite apparent this was a quite a crazy idea and then somehow in the UK we decided or in Scotland that this you know we should do something similar thankfully the backlash was good enough so that, that got reversed in, in Scotland um, but it's still it's becoming uh, much bigger and it's a good example of how something as you know as as important sport is if it's not sort of tackled where it can potentially go down because I think we're definitely seeing the repercussions now where in terms of schools um, it, it's it's going further in, in, in particular in primary schools with, with kids uh, which is the kind of more worrying side of this whole whole, whole debate um in, in terms of the the sort of like the the average australian is this something that comes up in conversation because it's definitely i would say in the last maybe two three four years in the uk this is a conversation that definitely comes up a lot more mm. oh absolutely and look if i um am sort of known as being the politician that talks about these issues <laughs> so I, I i do get a, a fair few people coming into my office and you know saying oh tell Senator Chandler well done for everything that she's doing and that's really lovely when um, that happens and very humbling when that happens but I, I, I so I do hear about it a lot but um, 
I think what I've noticed um, over here in particular is that uh, when, at least on the sports front, when a sporting body um, makes a decision around this, whether it's, um, you know, World um, Athena or uh, World Athletics or World Rugby coming up with policies. Sorry, something's just flashed up on my screen. Um, coming up with policies that, um, you know, sensibly say that women's sport is for biological females and and that's it and that's something that's worth protecting. So we, we see a conversation around it when that happens. Conversely, we also see a conversation around it when it becomes public that um, a male is competing in women's sport as well so it's yeah sort of events based still but I would stay say yeah I mean like like I say people are more than happy to raise these concerns with me because they um because I know that I've been standing up for them but um I mean the other issue is as well though so many people feel um that they can't talk about these issues publicly because they will get labeled as you know bigoted or worse um, just for just for saying them, and when I'm getting um, emails or messages or whatever it is from particularly women, they're all saying thank you so much for standing up for this because I don't feel like I can because, you know, I, I'll be socially ostracised, I'll lose my job, yada yada yada. Um, and there's just so much pressure to conform, uh, and I, I just find that really troubling. In terms of you know, I was going to talk about the general abuse you get on a whether it's daily basis monthly basis um what has that been like and did you expect to get as much as you do or do you think it's far less than what you got because here in the uk we would say people involved in politics get uh, an awful a lot of abuse is that similar experience in australia i mean a lot of it is mainly social media here i don't think you get really anything in person is that similar experience for yourself in australia yeah and look um when I first started speaking out about the the sport issue in particular, I didn't um, I didn't expect to get anywhere near the level of pushback that I did because you know perhaps naively I, I thought well this is just a common sense position of course um, women and girls are entitled to their own sporting competitions it's not fair or safe for expect them to expect them to do um, to do otherwise so uh, yes I, I went into it um, perhaps thinking that I wouldn't cop quite the level of abuse that I have um but look yes mainly on social media is where it happens and I am not on Twitter for many reasons but number one is the fact that I just don't think it would be uh, a good place for me to be if people were saying really horrible things about me like they say on my Facebook page I, I think I found one message in my on my Facebook page today that had every four-letter word under the sun thrown in directed at me and I thought mm, this is this is bad enough on Facebook let alone being on Twitter where I, I think people are just even more careless about typing something up and hitting send and not really thinking about the impact that it has but then I hear about um, you know women like JK Rowling and the level of abuse that she has received and I think well I've Fortunately, that has never happened to me. I, you know, haven't had um, credible death threats or anything like that. But it, it's vicious, and I can completely understand why many women um, don't feel empowered to stand up for these issues because they are scared of the backlash that they will receive. And in terms of pursuing a political career, I can completely understand why any woman would look at the experience I have had um, or, you know, other 
female colleagues of mine um, who have, you know, suffered for uh, what they believe in and think, you know, why would anyone think that this is a vocation that is worth pursuing? It, of course it is. It, it is and we have to keep fighting because, um, you know, we can't have a situation where women are scared of um, putting their views on the record and, and standing up for what they believe in. But it's a really challenging environment at the moment. I hope there is an overcorrection at some point in time. I hope we can find ourselves in a situation where we're able to um, engage in public discourse politely and um, considerately again, but uh, I don't think that's going to happen while Twitter still exists as a platform for many people to enter into that debate. It's definitely uh, difficult. You know, we uh, as an organisation, myself, are quite fairly active on Twitter and it is, we always joke, it is just a sewer pit of just pure uh, abuse. It's it's nice to get the message out there and um for us in, in the UK, I'm sure the stats similar in Australia, only around 17 to 18% of uh, our population is actually on on Twitter. So it's, you know, it can seem like um, a very, um, it can seem like that's still wild, but the harsh reality is it's not a remote, accurate reflection of what's going on in our country. I'm sure it's the same in, in Australia and the States. And I think what... One of the big issues with um, Twitter as well is that our media uses it as sort of a, a a rolling news feed and they get their stories from Twitter. Like if I see one more news article about something that someone tweeted or something that someone put on Instagram, you, I, I'm like, that's not, that's not news. What someone wrote on social media today isn't news. Go out and talk to some real people on the streets and figure out, you know, what, what their concerns are. Um, don't just, you know, think that this very strange twisted segment of society is, um, is something that's worthy of, um, you know, putting your journalistic pen to paper on. There are far bigger stories out there in the real world. I think there's also, you know, the case of the general, the silent majority, especially with, I think, conservative voices, you know, you're much less likely to be a vocal conservative than you are if you're on the left. They always typically tend to be a lot more vocal than we are and they'll, they'll shout and scream about things. So it can seem that there's a lot necessarily more of them, but the reality is they're just a, a lot louder uh, than I think a lot than we typically are. Um, I I want to move to something more slightly more positive in in terms of talking about the the UK Australia potential. I mean, it's something again. One of the things I say a lot of people have been frustrated about in the UK is the lack of in, engagement we've had with Australia, New Zealand, Canada in particular. Um, we've obviously been very Europe centric for the last decade and more. And one of the exciting things. Uh, with sort of global Britain plans is the potential of being closer with um, in particular th those countries there. What's the view in Australia? How do they see the the UK? Because we, we've had Australian um, previous people in Australian administrations, politicians who've all said that they feel sometimes in the last decade or so often ignored by the UK are not necessarily valued uh, as much as they would have liked. Um, what's the view do you think currently of today of of Australia and the UK, if you like, potential between the two countries? Um, I don't know. It interests me that that's been the view that you've heard because I think culturally, at least within, um, you know, the, the younger generations, I think there's a really positive 
attitude towards the United Kingdom. I mean, many, many, many Australians will um, go backpacking or have their gap year or, or go to want to go to the the UK at some point to work because I mean, you know, it, it's um, it's a wonderful country. Um, you know, similar values, part of the Commonwealth, yada yada. Like it, it just makes sense. For, you know, there are also many Australians that have um, ancestry from um, that. Uh, part of the world as well so I I certainly think um yeah I think there's a really good strong relationship there that we should be leveraging and yeah I I haven't seen anything to to make me think otherwise I think what where we got it from is more sort of ministers saying that you know we could do more like you know it's not done the two countries should be doing more together and building on that relationship in in the past we've not really done a lot as as you know Mm. their significant countries in terms of whether it's trade deals, whether it's, um, you know, helping each other with sort of um, better migration between two countries, that, that sort of feel in terms mm-hmm. of there's a lot more potential amongst the the countries than we've probably realised. Um, and oh, I mean, we're obviously pursuing a free trade agreement now, which is um, a very positive step forward, but not something that was necessarily able to happen um, before Brexit. So I think that's a, a really important step. And the going, I think we can sort of rounding things off in terms of the, you know, if we can give a sort of positive message on the the Liberal Party and you know what its future looks like, what what you think the 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 difference they can make if you like currently with the the Labour Party and how um you know you, you guys kind of if you like reclaim it and come back and take the next administration, uh, would would be great to hear and then also just um some of the things that you think that Australia as a country, um, it's sort of potential where the, so for, for us, for example, a massive thing that we're talking a lot about is expanding our, expanding even more our service-based industry. We call it the gig economy where we, we quite become more and more tech data focused. Where, where do you see the future of both your party and Australia as a country in general? Hmm. Well, um, in sort of keeping with the theme of what we were talking about right at the start, um, when the Liberals find ourselves in opposition um, almost wall to wall as we do now, it is um, more important than ever that we hold governments to account. And, you know, it sounds so simple, right? Everyone says, well, that's what the opposition is meant to do. They're meant to hold the government to account. Um, but I think that means, um, you know, we really do have to, you know, dig behind all of the spin um, from from Labor governments, and, and we see an awful lot of that, um, particularly at a state level um, in states like Victoria, we need to cut away all of that spin and, and very carefully and concisely look at what um, these Labor governments are, you know, ostensibly trying to deliver to um, to Australians and, and see whether or not what they're saying they're doing actually measures up with, with what they're doing on the ground. So it's a really important period of time for um, all of us as Liberals, I think, to engage really deeply with our communities to understand the issues that are making them tick, like the cost of living issue and, you know, the the, the shopper docket that's looking, you know, out of control now versus um, 12 or 18 months ago. And uh, it's hard to do that having um, gone through the pandemic and the way in which we engage with constituents was, uh, or, you know, not just, sorry, politicians engaging with constituents, but, um, you know, everyday people um, engaging in everyday society with each other, that changed so much. And we, you know, almost have to wind back the years a bit, I think, and say, well, how, how do we do this? How do we reach out to people 
in a post-pandemic era? How do we understand the issues that are making people tick? Because if we're not doing that work, if we're not reaching out into our communities and understanding um, what the issues are, then we're not going to be able to hold governments to account because we're not going to know where the problems are. And the other reason I think it's important for us to be reaching out into our communities and engaging with people on a you know a face-to-face basis wherever possible is it goes back to that value piece. Our values are very good values. They're very sound values. They've served um, not only our party but broader society very well for you know in the Liberal Party's case the last um, almost 80 years, I think. Um, and we need to be connecting with people and showing them how um, our values can be used to solve the problems that they see in their life. And so I, I guess that's that's the next piece for us as oppositions. It's, it's hold government to account um, and recenter ourselves on our values and then be able to demonstrate that if there is a deficiency in what the government is doing, here's how our values could be used to um, improve that deficiency better than what the government's doing themselves. I think that's so, so important. One of the big criticisms of our current um, opposition Labour is they do not hold, even us Conservatives, nowhere near to the accountability that um, we as Conservatives would like to see. It's so important for democracy, for it to really flourish. You need credible opposition in this country. You could argue for a long time we've not really had that, and you that's how complacency creeps in. That's how the country suffers in, in, in a lot of ways. So it's it's great to hear that the Liberal Party and yourself have, you know, have these plans to really hold uh, the current administration to, to accountability. Mm. And then, in terms of the broader um, piece around what 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 next for Australia and and what um, will be happening for us in the future? Again, I think there's this uh, adjustment sort of post pandemic, right? We um, we realised very very quickly during the pandemic that we uh, need to be able to make our own stuff. So that if we are in a situation where we can't source it from elsewhere, that we have some sort of um, sovereign um, sovereign manufacturing capability there. And um, I, I think some of the public attention has perhaps slipped on that issue um, in recent times, just as, you know, the, the borders have reopened and we've all started moving around a little bit more. But that risk is still there um, and particularly looking at the geopolitical situation in the region, we need to be um, ready to, you know, to be more self-reliant when the next big disruptive event comes. Uh, it's probably not going to be another one in 100-year pandemic, um, hopefully, uh, but, you know, it, it might be conflict in our region and we need to be ready for, you know, what that might mean for us. I mean, you know, generally in, in a defence um capability as well but you know in terms of our everyday lives how how we would deal with that how are we going to get fuel how are we going to um get the you know the, the goods into our country that we currently import that we may not be able to if you know our access is locked off or something like that so some really big challenges um into the future and that you know with challenge always comes opportunity but we have to be we have to be ready for them. Um, and it, again, I, I'm not confident that our current government is necessarily ready for those challenges. So we as Liberals are going to have to stand up and, and call that out when we see it. Great. Well, it's been great to have you on today. And uh, yeah, best of luck for the future and uh, keep us updated on, on, your, on your journey within the Liberal Party. Thanks very much, Sunil.